From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. I'm Ace McKay in for Jack Williams as we head into the weekend prior to short work week. Thanksgiving is on the way. If you haven't started your shopping like I have not, we've got a lot on our plate this weekend. So needless to say, we also look forward to taking your calls today. So 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Again, outside North America, 1205-271-2985. And Colin, I have to ask, what's the one thing you're looking forward to for Thanksgiving? Probably what everybody else is. You know, it's one of the two times a year we do turkey. Yeah. Thanksgiving and Christmas. So uh, always look forward to that. And the Hawaiian salad, which is goes by the name of Ambrosia also, I believe. It was a favorite of my mother's and always had that as a kid. So those two things always go together in my mind for yeah. Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's always the post-turkey <clears throat> nap that's my favorite. So, you know, as, you know, halftime of whatever game is on, you know, we've seen the parade, time to just, you know, kind of chill and Look at my true, eyelids true. for a while. After you do the dishes, of course. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Man, you keep adding to my list. I'm really feeling like i got to catch up. So as we do head into it, of course, uh, looking forward to your questions. Uh, let's jump into the email bag sure. uh, as we start the weekend. This is coming from Sharon. She says, if my pastor makes up the words during consecration, is it a valid consecration? So she gives an example. Mm-hmm. She says that he skips over words like on the night he was betrayed and refers to the Jesus' disciples as his friends. Yeah, the the, the celebrant uh, of whatever grade of the priesthood or episcopacy is obliged to the the text as provided by the church. Uh, it's the church's liturgy because it's Christ's liturgy. It's not the liturgy of the individual priest. Although there are many options for personalizing the liturgy in the choices of the when there's not a fixed uh, a fixed ordo for a particular mass, you know, to take a memorial or a commemoration or something like that. So there are options that the priest can do, but changing the words are, are, is not one of them. And some of the word changes will be trivial. Some of them will be more grave in terms of matter for the conscience, which ought to consider it as having been a, a, a grave abuse. Uh, generally, those are covered in a, in a, uh, in a document, um, uh, a document John Paul II called The Sacrament of the Redemption from the 1990s. And he talks about the the different kinds of abuse, uh, abuses and the more the more serious ones and the less serious ones. In the case that she cites, I would say there's probably a mix of the trivial outside of the words of institution and the more serious inside the words of institution. It would still be an abuse. There would still be a failure of obedience to the text as given by the church. The mass would be valid if the essential form of the words of institution, which most theologians would would take following the the example of St. Thomas Aquinas as that which describes what is happening. This is my blood holding the bread. This is my body. This is my body. 
holding the wine, this is my blood. There are words in that form which are, are obligatory, but those words are necessary for, for the validity. So if an example would be, and this is not the case she cites, but an example would be, this becomes my body or this becomes uh, my blood. No. The priest acting in the person of Christ is saying, this is my body and Christ's power transubstantiates that matter. And likewise, this is my blood. So, or the chalice of my blood. Uh, so I think those are, the, those are the considerations. That would be terribly grave because it would invalidate the sacrifice. From the, if no sacrifice, there's no communion. Re- receiving communion would be materially sacrilegious. So it would compound, that would be on the head of the priest. The people might not even realize that they're receiving bread and not Christ. So there are very grave problems in changing the essential words of any of the sacraments, the things which the church has by its long tradition or by law said should never be changed because those are the things which specify what happens in the sacrament. So, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Valid. I baptize you in the name of the parent, child, and spirit. Invalid. The church has a form which is specified, and that each of the sacraments will have an essential form necessary uh, to its valid performance. And that's all the priest is asked to do. It's like, it's not very difficult. Just, you know, as the old saying goes... Read the red, do the black. Hmm. Or rather, I guess it's the other way around. Yeah. Rather, the other way around. <laughs> you're, doing the, you're saying the words. You say the black. You're reading the rubrics, generally in red. That's all you're obliged to do. And it should be done for fidelity. Now, if in a particular case, uh, a person has a question about the validity of the Mass because those, those key words were changed, that's a matter... You could give the courtesy of, of speaking to the priest, but what priest really is going to admit, or he would push, push you off. I think for those changes, you go to the bishop. Hmm. All right. Well, Sharon, we appreciate your email. If you'd like to send yours in, you can do that. Just uh, email us at openline at EWTN.com as we get set to take your calls heading into the weekend. Again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And of course, we want to say thanks to Michael, Jeff, and Matt, our uh, show team today. If you, of course, are on YouTube or even on Facebook, you can leave your comments in the comment line, and then uh, we'll be happy to put those through to you as well. I actually have a question for you, Colin, that I think is kind of common for most as we head into the holidays, mm-hmm. when you have families come together that are of different faiths or some that may be believers and some that are not, right. how do you describe the best way to navigate those conversations? Well, inevitably, families feel very secure in talking to other family members, disagreeing with other family members. Uh, this is why f- family life is the crucible of virtue. <laughs> you're going to grow. You're going to grow in virtue in family situations and in big family uh, gatherings. Uh, for that reason, we feel a little freer. Always remember that you want to you want to be truthful about what you believe and and what you think is important in the world with respect to God, with respect to life. 
And you also want to be charitable in explaining that to others, uh, not condemning them. You don't know their conscience. You don't know their formation necessarily. Uh, maybe you do a brother or sister you knew went through the same, you know, excellent Catholic schooling you did that ought to know better. Mm. But you can say most things can be said charitably or arrogantly and opt for charitably. It recognizes that other people have made other choices and made decisions, maybe not the best decisions, but it recognizes their dignity. It recognizes that God uh, has a plan for them. And you can always pray about them, that they be, you know, moved down the field, so to speak, with respect to God, getting them to the goal line, even if they seem to be taking the ball in the other direction. So be truthful regarding what you believe and so on, but do it with love and not with arrogance or with self-superiority or anything like that. Uh, That doesn't mean somebody's not going to react to the truth angrily. You can't be responsible for that reaction. Uh, if you have done what you can to speak to them in love and not in just to condemn them or to feel superior about your own self and where you're at in your life. All right. All right. Hopefully that helps you. Of course, if uh, you still want to get a call in this afternoon, 833-288-EWTN. Davey, he jumps in on email today and says, what does the church teach about a marriage between people of different faiths? Well, uh, people, uh, one of whom is baptized and one of whom is not, is a natural marriage. It's a marriage by the law of God. It's the marriage of Adam and Eve. Uh, so that's, that's the way the church looks at that. People are married. They're married by what human nature has given us for the purposes which human nature established. If they're two baptized people, then that's a sacramental marriage, and a lot of other considerations come into effect, uh, such that for the church, this is an image of Christ's love and marriage to the church, as it were. So that has different complications, different uh, responsibilities. Uh, So what very often happens, of course, is people enter marriage because of the romantic feeling and emotional feelings and all of that, or even a common, you know, uh, common interests and all of those things which are beneficial and good, you know, good support and for a marriage. Uh, and they don't often think about, well, what will be the complications created by our difference of faith, and especially some lack of faith or a non-Catholic Christian. Those are things to wor- to think about. And especially if you go to the priest and say you want to be married, to, to talk to him about how are we going to navigate the, these waters of a marriage between a Catholic and a non-Catholic Christian or even a non-Christian. All right. It is EWTN Open Line with Colin Donovan. Your call's at 833-288-EWTN when we get back. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Of course, as we get set to take your calls, maybe you're already thinking about Christmas and shopping or 
decorating the tree, whatever that might be going on. And EWTNRC.com is a great place to shop. Right now, we have the Madonna and Child Wood Ornament. This is a very unique and distinctive lasered ornament that actually uh, comes in different designs. So you can get it as a gift for yourself, maybe teacher's gift in time for Christmas. Uh, But again, you can find out more about free shipping standards for $75 or more when you use the code FREE at checkout. Again, go to EWTNRC.com. RC.com. It is EWTN Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Again, 833-288-3986 as we go to St. Petersburg, Florida. Checking in with Rebecca, listening on Ave Maria Radio. What is your question for Colin, Rebecca? Hey, how are you? This is one of those um, rabbit hole questions. <laughs> so someone asked me the other day, if um, why is it okay if why is it okay for us to separate the body parts of saints and spread them all over the world? and not cremains of family members. And so I gave my best answer that I could think of, which probably wasn't correct. But um, then they asked, then they said, um, you know, I went along the lines of, well, we venerate, you know, because they're well, holy people, we venerate their relics, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And they said, well, we venerate our family's remains. And anyway, so I just, you know, I really couldn't answer it. So yeah. help me. Help. Yeah. I need help. <laughs> sure. Um, the, the The difference is that the general rule, uh, the, when we're talking about relics, as you as you know, these are the relics of saints uh, and also of blessed at, at a stage in the canonization process. The body is exhumed um, j- just to generally confirm that this is the person that, if that's possible, of course, bodies decay and all of that. But also to to take relics in view of beatification and canonization and so on. The purpose of relics in the church is for veneration. Uh, the way the church has always venerated the relics, say, of the martyrs in the early church, uh, knowing where they were buried uh, in the case of the catacombs and so on, and saying mass uh, in the places of burial and even over the remains of the martyrs. It recognizes the Christian holiness that they attained in their example, uh, their imitation of Christ perfectly, even in the case of martyrs, because they they went to death for the, the mission that God gave them, uh, and that is uh, they went to death for our Lord himself. And so on the basis of that, the church venerated the relics of the martyrs, and when the era of martyrdom of the early centuries ended and there weren't so many martyrs to, to venerate, there began to look to those who lived a life of heroic virtue, such as the holy men and women in their prayer life and their austerities and their conformity to the will of God. And on the basis of that, to canonize people who were remarkable confessors of the faith, like a St. Augustine or Ambrose or, or Jerome or Chrysostom or other of the names that we're familiar from the early church, who weren't martyrs, but they were, they were great promoters, evangelizers, and confessors of the faith. Uh, so confessing the faith is, you might say, one step short of being a martyr for the faith. No martyrdom around confessors of the faith were considered holy and important. And so the martyr becomes, and the confessor and the other saints that the church uh, beatifies and canonizes, become instances of, not a, of the example of Christ. And so we were allowed to venerate them. 
Now, venerate them, you know, doesn't mean that we we put them on the uh, on the mantle or something like that. The way veneration occurs is different from, I'm sure, the way veneration of one's, you know, mother or father's aunt, favorite aunt or whatever, who's on your mantelpiece, because the church has certain rules. Generally speaking, the remains, the what are called the first class relics, are only granted. To the clergy for the for the benefit of the of veneration in the church, so that's it's limited to the church. Now, in recent decades, it's been easier for the laity to get first class relics, those that are uh, bodily remains, body and blood. Uh, it's been also the relics that are things the person used in their life, maybe a favorite prayer book, the breviary, uh, the missal of a priest that he used, or the clothing that he wore, or something like that. And so those second-class relics, it's been easier to get those kinds of things. But the, the church's view is that these are for religious veneration, for that religious pur- purpose. We can't make that claim of our auntie and our uncle or our mother and father unless they're very holy and they get canonized or beatified. Then we could. So what the church says for the rest of us in view of the resurrection— we, if we cremate them, we put them in holy ground, consecrated ground, whether in literally in the ground or in a columbarium that's been blessed uh, after when at the time of burial, and there they remain until the day of the resurrection. That's the respect that we owe to the body, certainly of the believer, and by general common human practice down through the millennia. That is the respect that was showed to all of people's ancestors of whatever religion and no religion is you put them in the in the place in the ground now in different cultures different things were done sometimes they were cremated in the sense of a bonfire uh, I think in some of the uh, northern European uh, cultures that was the case so different things were done in different cultures but among Christians at least and those who uh, followed burial practices, they were put in the ground. So there really is no historical example and so and no basis, certainly from Christian faith, for putting a loved one who uh, there remains on the mantle piece, piece. Then you have to ask the question, where is that going to go? You know, if I'm killed, <laughs> you have grandma on the mantelpiece, and the family is wiped out in a massive car accident. There's grandma on the mantelpiece, and the, the you know the auctioner comes along, and what's he going to do? Auction off grandma to the highest bid. So it's a very disorderly way of dealing with grandmother, fr- frankly. Mm. So it's not respectful. That's the point of view of the church. Put grandma in the ground, or if she's cremated in a columbarium, where you can visit her and pray for her on her birthday or the day of burial or the day she died, whatever, whenever or whenever you want to, as many families do every month, to go and put flowers or to visit the grave or something like that. That's the respectful way to deal with grandmother, not to put them on the, her on a mantle in a, in a vase of some kind. All right. Rebecca, thanks so much for your question. That, of course, now frees up a line, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And again, you can always jump in on Facebook or YouTube and submit your questions there. It is EWTN Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan as we now go to Louisiana. First-time caller listening on Catholic Community Radio. Hi, Kathy. What's your question? Hi, 
Hi. My question is um, that on uh, recently I went to Mass, and I thought at the words of consecration, I thought the priest said, um, instead of will be given up for you, was given up for you. And I really, truly think that's what I heard. So, but I did go to communion. And um, then you said earlier that that's sacrilegious. So I need to know what that what sacrilegious And then No, I, like, I didn't actually say what you think, I, or at least you drew a conclusion from it that I didn't intend, certainly. If the, the, if the, if the central part of the form, you know, the chalice becomes it, you know, this, the chalice of my blood, or what the language there that's central to the words of institution. This is my body, which is the, the exact form. If if that's not specified, this thing, bread, wine, is, is, <laughs> and then what it becomes, what it is now, as to versus what it was. Now that's not saying how the description that follows is not unimportant. It's an abuse for the priest, and of course it can be unconscious. I mean, he, he accidentally say something. What you described suggests that it was that, but it's not per se part of that central form, and therefore there's no, I don't think there's a question of the validity of that. So therefore, the the abuse of changing words that aren't part of the essential form, those are still an abuse. It doesn't do anything about the communion. The communion is only materially sacrilegious, not formally, because who's going out for communion thinking about, you know, they may be oblivious to what the priest actually said, their face buried in their hands or however they, you know, spend those moments of the consecration. They may not even hear the words or so in praying or whatever. They're not morally at fault if the priest says something stupid and it happens to be bread and not Christ. There's no sacrilege for the person who receives unknowing that that was done. And in the case you describe, it sounds like, no, it was a valid consecration, but he, like you said, he used the wrong verb tense in that particular part of the form. So he ought to try to get it better if he really did say that, and, uh, uh, but it doesn't sound like validity was the issue there, and certainly not sacrilege for those who unknowingly receive uh a communion because of some mistake other than the valid consecration of the species. All right, Kathy, thanks so much for the does question. That, does that help you? Does that clarify for uh, you? Well, I, I, well, not really, because I did go up and receive communion. Yeah, I mean, but what you I, described I, was, was communicable. Okay, so it was. Because I struggled in my mind a little bit, should I go or should I not? Yeah. But... Um, but I went because I was like, well, he didn't mean to do that. And he didn't. Afterwards, when I spoke with him, he was like aghast that he had mm-hmm. done that. Um, so, okay. So, all right. I just want to be but sure. But those like, words I, were outside of the statement that this is this is blood, right? Yes, it was. He yes. said, this is my body. But he said, which, will, which was given up for you rather than yeah. will be given not, up. Not a question okay. of validity at all. Not at all. Oh, gotcha. Okay, Not at thank all. you so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for your question, Kathy. Now that you're uh, officially no longer a first-time caller, call back anytime. <laughs>
That now frees up a line, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Before we go to the break, want to check in with our email bag. Daniel says, did St. Paul believe the second coming of Jesus was imminent? It would seem so, and it raises an important consideration in interpreting the Scripture. Those who say things, who teach a certain truth, or even speak prophetically as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others did, and it were inspired to speak those words, probably don't understand unless God gave them a special knowledge and insight into what they're inspired, exactly the implications of that. And so whether Paul did or did not know that Christ would return in his generation, we don't know, but clearly history shows he did not. And there's no reason to believe that he understood it that way. But even if he did, it wouldn't wouldn't matter. All right. More with Colin Donovan on EWT and Open Line Friday when we come back. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. All right, we're ready to take your calls as we head into the weekend. Again, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986, and outside North America at 1205-271-2985. I'm Ace McKay, and for Jack Williams, as we uh, jump into the mailbag, Jim wants to know, what does it mean in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, when Jesus says, there is sin which is mortal, I do not say that, is to pray for that. Um, he said 1 John 5, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. I put you on the spot there. Yeah, I think without the context there, that's, uh, that's pretty hard if I can pull that up uh, quickly here. One John. Next time I'll give you a heads up for sure. <laughs> While he's looking that up again, I'll give you the phone number, 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. And again, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, Jeff Burson is uh, managing social media today, and we'll be happy to get your question through to us, and uh, we'll be happy to jump on the lines here in just a bit. Did you find her? Yeah, I, I did. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a little bit an unusual uh, expression. Certainly, there's the distinction that the, the, the church always used between grave sin and lesser sin, mortal sin and venial sin. Sins which uh, are, are sort of, you know, looking God in the face and saying, I will not serve like the devil. So a knowing, willingly accomplished, uh, we do something which we know to be a grave offense against God. We do it freely, willingly, without any kind of constraint of our will or force or fear or impulse of emotion that uh, would mitigate that, that, that. We do it freely. That's a sin unto death because if we were to die in the moment, there's only one place we would go. It wouldn't be with God. Other sins show a defect maybe in our character, an attachment to pleasures or worldly living or something like that, where we do something with a defect. You know, we try to be good, but we're lazy. We, we don't do it well. Or the matter itself is lesser matter. So stealing would be a good example. You know, you know if I steal your pen when you're not looking and later you come back to the suit, where's, where's my pen gone? That's not really a serious thing. I shouldn't have done it, mm. but the matter is small. Now, if I were to, you know, lift your wallet and 
Not that you're carrying a thousand dollars around in your wallet, but let's say you clearly for, don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to answer that question right. on the air, I don't think. But let's say, let's say, if you did, and I say, oh, aren't I lucky? There's no way he can know I took it, and I'm happy I took it. That was grave matter. That's very injurious to you to deprive you of that quantity of of, of money. Um, Either is stealing, but one is venial, slight, and the other is grave, mortal. So what John is using this distinction here to say, I think, is that God will not forgive the mortal sinner who chooses that freely because that requires a reverse course, mm-hmm. a conversion. Our praying for them does them no good. It may in time, but it certainly doesn't deliver them from that the weight of that sin. They must convert. But if we pr- pray for somebody who maybe insults us a little bit, they're not trying to destroy our good name or something like that, and the person themselves is in the state of grace and they're not separated from God, God can have an influence on them. So that's what I see it. There's probably no official understanding of this, and I'm not sure, say, how the fathers of the church uh, treat this, but I sort of see those that distinction in there that uh, you can certainly pray for the conversion down the road of the mortal sinner. We pray for people in our culture who are doing the gravest evils. We don't abandon them to their evils or abandon them to the devil. We pray for them, but we know that they themselves have to change their direction. We can't change their will for them. But the person who's already going to God maybe needs just a little shove back to the center. And we can pray that, you know, they will get that, even as we pray for the, for the sinner as well. There is no praying for the person who's killed, obviously, in the midst of a committing a mortal sin, uh, simply because unless they've repented before the last instant of their life, that's an irreversible decision on their part. Uh, so, Hard to know that that's what John was trying to say there, but I certainly see some elements of that question of culpability for mortal sin and the role of grace and conversion of the grave sinner versus the, 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 the weak person who's otherwise a good person and, and, and maybe needs a little tap on the side of the face on occasion from God. We all need that nudge. We all need that, yes, that <laughs> nudge. Thanks so much for your email, Jim. Anytime you want to drop us a line, you can do so open line at EWTN.com. Uh, it is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan on YouTube. Anne-Marie wants to know, why do people wonder who wrote Revelation when John said, it is I, John? They're because the scholars themselves wonder, is John the priest the same as John the apostle? Or is this somebody else? The tradition, which is by no means infallible on this point, because the church generally says the names on the books are not are not necessarily there's no canonicity attached to the the title that is given there. Now, to the words themselves, yes, someone named John wrote that, but the tradition ascribes it to the apostle John who was in exile on the island of Patmos until his death. And so I think on the historical level you would say that that is John the Apostle. There are some scholarly arguments, uh, more, mostly in the 20th, 20th century, into the 21st century. I think 
most Catholic scholars certainly, and probably most Protestant scholars historically would have had no trouble affirming that to be John. There are other books which are more difficult. Who wrote Hebrews, for example? Uh, Was it Paul or was it one of his disciples? And so that debate has been going on for quite a long time. Uh, Luther wanted to throw it out of the Bible because he he couldn't affirm, I guess, in his own mind that this was written by an apostolic personage or, or something. I'm not sure exactly of his argument, but he was prepared to, to, to throw it out. And so there have been those kinds of arguments that go back to the patristic era. But pretty much by the end of the third, third and fourth centuries, certainly, but even by the end of the third, there were lists of books which were largely what we have today. And by the 380s, that, that canon has been fixed in the West because it was first spoken of in the, uh, in the Synod of Rome uh, and the Pope sent, because the bishop inquired, what books are accepted at Rome, and he told him, and we have that list, and it's the same list that the Vulgate has in its Bible that the Catholic Bible today has. But debates over the centuries have led, for instance, the Protestants throughout the so-called deuterocanonical books, the books which the Jews themselves did not accept in Palestine. Although the Jewish decisions in Palestine of the first century have no value for the Christian because they have no authority for the Christian and they were the opinions of scholars, not of any legal authority in Judaism because it had no magisterium per se. Mm -hmm. So those debates will continue among non-Catholics, but for the Catholics... It's a done deal for about uh, 1,700 years now. All right. Thanks so much for your question, Anne-Marie. And uh, we're going to jump over to the phone again, 833-288-EWTN, a first-time caller from Dallas, Texas, Josh, listening on Guadalupe Radio Network. Josh, what's your question for Colin Donovan? Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask. Um, my, I have a question that comes up between me and my dad all the time. Sadly, he doesn't come to the church um, anymore, so please pray for him, but mm-hmm. um, he always asked about why we have venial and mortal sins. It, he sees that as two sins being two separate things, mm-hmm. and um, it, whenever we're taught that if we break one sin, it's the same as breaking a much larger one. I don't well, know if I phrased that correctly. Sure. Yeah. No. I think I get. I, I think it sort of goes to what I was uh, just describing in uh, the earlier question, but uh, a little bit of history there. Saint Paul tells us that the Mosaic Law was given as a tutor, and the fullness was given in Jesus Christ. And when you look at the sins, look at the sins which lead to death—literally death. In the, old, in the Old Covenant. You see, all of those sins are the gravest sins because pedagogically, using St. Paul's sort of lens of viewing, viewing the Old Covenant, God was teaching the Jews the seriousness and the gravity of sins. You could describe probably, St. Thomas always said, he, he, he talks about 50 or so virtues in his writings. But he says virtues are only limited by their object. And there are other virtues that might have different objects than the one he described. 
In a similar way, vices and sins are only d- d- differentiated, you know, by by their object, what they're what they're trying to do. And so there's an innumerable number of sins. But are you going to give everybody just a laundry list of sins, or are you going to pick those which are the worst, and are you going to explain uh, to them, in this case to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, explain to them the gravity of apostasy, of adultery, of idolatry, of the worst sexual sins beyond adultery, such as homosexual homosexual sin, and you go down the list of the things, some of which incurred the penalty of death. Now, for Christians, they don't incur physical death because they were teaching us that they incur spiritual death. And so you look at Paul's list in chapter 1 of Romans, the things which uh, lead to spiritual death. There are a number of parallels with the list in the Old Covenant. But the more important thing is that we can't be satisfied only with the list of sins that are in, say, the Old Testament. Because Christ gave his gospel and he gave us the church to lead us to all truth And so the church can go into the matter of sin in detail as it does in so many other areas. And so the details of that get into describing uh, what goes into the element of sin. I mentioned, you know, virtues described by the objectives or the end point. Likewise, the sins, the vices described by the end point. The very first thing is the object of the sin. Kill. Steal slander, the thing which is intrinsic to the action that you're going to do. It's the object of what you're doing. The second element, my intention. Perhaps if you intend, if you believe, if your intention is the thought that this is actually a positive thing, that would probably mitigate your sin. But you could think of the person who does something, you know, bad, but they're not intending to do the evil that they do, but they're weakened by their their will. This is the church recognizes this a case, especially of sexual sin, that we're very much driven by our emotions, our conditionings, our upbringing, our cultures. You know, uh, so even today we could say, as Jesus said of his own generation, they're you know like sheep. They don't have a shepherd. They can't tell their left hand from their right hand. The conscience can get so confused you can't tell the truth from the error, the right hand from the left hand. And so that intention, that's a mitigating thing. And then finally, the circumstances. Sin can be lessened or worsened by the circumstances in which it is done. So we take this commonly in civil law, you know, if you kill somebody is murder, but if you were to kill a police officer in the course of enforcing the law and trying to arrest you, that would be a very aggravating circumstance. It, it makes the crime worse, and we get worse penalties. So these distinctions are something that grew up and flowered in, with the insights of the Spirit and of grace working in the Church down the centuries so that the Catholic Church has a very clear and developed moral theology on the on what is objectively evil and what is what is the role of emotions and other factors in the intention and what is the role of circumstances and so we when we think about the public discussions of sin and that and and of guilt 
they're very often, you know, trying to get us to look more closely at those elements, especially in the sexual sins, to recognize the, the way in which people are are hamstrung by the factors of their upbringing, their emotions, uh, their, their cultural uh, formation, and so on. So the, the church has taken what was given to the Jews as a tutorage on what is evil, and it has gone into the essence of the, of the great evil, and that is it's an offense against God. And all sins are an offense against God. But we recognize that there are grave offenses such as the, ten, the, the core of the Ten Commandments, but there are also lesser offenses. And, of course, the grave offenses can be mitigated such that the person doesn't have the responsibility of doing that. And if they don't have the responsibility because of their, you know, their intention has been corrupted by influences on their will, by their emotions and upbringing and so on, then it may be that it's only venially sinful for them in that context. All of this through the effect of grace. And Christ desired this. He gave this to the church. He gave the Holy Spirit at the Last Supper. This is one of the fruits of that reflection on the gospel, Old and New Testament, which we understand today in way the way in which the nature of sin can be characterized somewhat in the same kind of scientific way that we understand the nature of physical reality. In the past, their idea of Adam was sort of like a, you know, a bunch of marbles thrown together. But now we know all of the substructure of, of atoms, down to the subatomic particles, down to the forces that hold matter together. Because over time, knowledge grows and it builds upon the shoulders of the past. And this is what has happened in the church. So you may not get your dad to sit down and listen to all of that, but be gentle and maybe sort of think about how you would say that in a couple quick ways that maybe central on the point of the Old Testament, was teaching us what is gravely offensive to God by the material example of capital punishment. But today we understand that it was speaking about spiritual death. And that's why the gospel talks in that language and not in the language of the old law. Excellent. Josh, thanks so much for your question, and thanks for listening in Dallas. As uh, that now frees up a phone line, you might still get in this afternoon, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we go on to our next question, we want to let you know, especially if you are in youth ministry this weekend, you want to check out Beyond Damascus uh, with Dan DeMatte and Aaron Richards. That's going to be Saturday night at 8 Eastern on EWTN Radio as young Catholic adults share their stories of life, and this week covering the topic topic of youth ministry. So check that out as well online uh, on demand at EWTN.com slash radio. If you still want to get in, we've got time to take your calls. We'll jump into the email. And uh, Quinn wants to know, when does the sacred species change in consecration? Wow, do we have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Should have started the show with that one. <laughs> oh, I think we spent a whole day in, in uh, sacramentology on that one in the seminary. Yeah, the church has tolerated a lot of opinions. In the Eastern Church, they have a general sense that the whole 
you know, central part of the Eucharistic prayer from the from from the anamnesis, the laying on of uh, or the calling down of the Holy Spirit. This is usually where the bell rings in the parish, if the parish uses the bells, and the priest has his hands over the elements and he's praying for the Holy Spirit, that these become the, you know, the body and blood of Christ. Through the, the end of the prayer, without specifying a particular point, on the other hand, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, the scholastics using, uh, using the p- philosophical ideas of Aristotle, worked out an explanation of which we call transubstantiation, and that is indeed a dogma of the Church to be believed by Catholics, that the body and blood are transubstantiated into the, into the, bread, uh, in, the bread and the wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. And so we generally take it as the twofold consecration of the bread on the one hand and the wine on the other. Now, if you look at it just serially, and we're time-bound creatures, so we do tend to think of it that way, you could say, well, first one and the other. But I think there's a way of looking at it mystically that this is a package, and it's that the sacrifice doesn't take place first of the body and of the body. But you see, there's a certain wholeness to the whole thing. So the debate even still continues as to whether the consecration of one element is a valid consecration, and I don't believe Rome has ever decided that. So the priest drops dead after having consecrated one of the elements. The obligation is for to get another priest to come in to finish the consecration. So it's a mass, not to just consecrate one element. So there are some undecided points, actually, but in the normal course of things, it doesn't matter because whether you're in the Eastern Rite with a broader rites with a broader sense of it, or you're in the Western Rite where we get you know down to the minute. Oh, here's here's the one, here's the other. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because if the mass is said validly and 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 lawfully, the consecration takes place. So, generally speaking, as Western Catholics, Roman Catholics. We would say it takes place when the when the words are spoken, just as baptism takes place when the water is poured and the form words are spoken, and likewise for the second species, uh, the wine becoming the, bo- the blood of Christ. I think that would be our 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 common and and useful from our point of view uh, statement regarding that. But interestingly, there, there was a case here a few years ago when um, John Paul II was pope and Benedict was the prefect of, uh, was then Cardinal Ratzinger, prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, where one of the Eastern churches who have never used uh, a Eucharistic prayer or anaphora, as they call it in, the, in, in Greek in the East, that had that kind of specificity to it. And so Rome concluded, because it, was, it had a deep roots in the apostolic era, that it must be the whole, and that w- it was accepted that that was a, a valid consecration. Now, we can accept that ruling because it was done by the highest authority of the church in something of serious matter, and, and so the, the you know, reconciliation between the churches and all of that was involved in that. Uh, but it doesn't answer the theological question, and people are always wanting to have their intellect satisfied as to well, when exactly when. Well, 
we have a we have an answer to that question. And it's very satisfying if you're a Roman, less satisfying if you're an Eastern. Uh, but uh, I think we can we can let Rome handle uh, how 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 it relates to the other churches on this point. Uh, so the general Roman answer is in in those particular places over the consecration of each species. Excellent. All right, jumping on Facebook. In less than a day, it took me to six points. I was going to say, I was very impressed with how well you condensed that down. So we'll uh, we'll bookmark that as uh, <laughs> the shortest answer ever. Um, our final <laughs> <that> question. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, our final question from Yinsu on uh, Facebook says, why do Jewish people refer to Christians as idol worshipers? Oh, well, because they had a very strict uh, the, the commandment against making, uh, making uh, idols was certainly reinforced many, many times by the Lord in the Old Testament uh, to make a, an image of God. We understand that is there is no fit image for God who is spirit, but Christ himself, or the Father made an image himself of, of the Godhead in sending Jesus Christ. He is an image, St. Paul tells us, of the invisible God, the very thing the Jews were forbidden to do, God himself did. So God, the, the Jewish people tried to, when they were at fault, they tried to satisfy the human desire to look at something that is a representative of God. You know, the pagan peoples carried around the golden calf or the they had their different, you know, the Philistines had their statue that they worshipped and they fed and did all of the pagan cultures had something like that. Because there's something deep in us that wants to see this God that we know. And so God is invisible, but God himself made an icon of himself to satisfy the human heart. And that icon was Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so we make images that recall that icon to ourselves. St. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we make images. That won't be satisfying to a Jew because they're going by the old law, which completely forbid it. So the temple could be, could be decorated with pomegranates and palm tree decorations and things like that. And the Muslims do the same thing. They don't use human figures uh, generally. Uh, although they have a very popular icon of Our Lady, called Our Lady of the, of, the, of the Dates, sitting under a palm tree, holding the Christ child, and with St. Joseph peeking at her around the bushes. That might be a bit of an exception in popular uh, Islamic uh, piety. All right. Well, that wraps up another edition of Open Line Friday. Colin, thank you for your wisdom today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Of course, have a great weekend and uh, have a great, uh, I guess, prep for your Thanksgiving, whatever you have going on. We want to say thanks to our show team. Thanks to Michael, Jeff, and Matt for making today possible. And as always, your calls are welcome. We'll be back on Monday for a short work week. Uh, but uh, EWT and Open Line is easy to access. You can watch us as well as we get set for the Encore tonight. And we'll look forward to seeing you on Monday. Yeah.